Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Episode 79 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Ever since the beginning of human history, people have wondered about the world in which we find ourselves. Many explanations have been proposed for the phenomena we see around us, some of these explanations include religious ones, magical ones, psychic ones, and scientific ones. So how are we to sort all these out? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So Jimmy, this is a key episode of Mysterious World. Why is that? Well, there are certain episodes of the show where rather than looking at a specific mystery, we dig down and look at foundational concepts that will run through multiple episodes. Uh, these key episodes lay the groundwork for things we'll cover in the series generally. For example, we did episode 55, where instead of looking at a specific event where people claim to have had contact with aliens, we instead looked at the more fundamental issue of what would the theological implications be if we discovered intelligent alien life. Uh, this episode will be similar in that we'll be looking at a set of concepts that appear or will appear in multiple episodes. And those concepts are religion, science, superstition, magic, and psychic phenomena. The relationship between these concepts is tricky because historically there weren't sharp distinctions between them. Uh, for example, in the ancient world, astronomy, which today is a science, and astrology, which today is a superstition, were the same thing. Uh, one of our goals today is to look at the history of how these concepts developed and how they came to be disentangled from each other. So how are we going to proceed? We'll look at each term and try to develop a definition for it to the extent we can. We'll be looking at the etymology of each term, that is, where it came from, and then we'll look at how it changed over time. And it's important to do that because it's very easy for people to commit what's called the etymological fallacy and define a word strictly by where it came from. But Etymology, you know, it can help us in some ways to understand the history of a word. It doesn't tell us what the word means. Meaning is determined by usage, not origin. An example of that, one of my favorite examples, in fact, my favorite example is the English word nice. And we all know what nice means. It's like pleasant or you know, pretty or something like that. If I say that's a nice dress, I mean, it's a pretty dress. But the origin of the word nice is the Latin word nescient uh, or nescius, which means ignorant. <laughs> and so you, if, if nice meant what, what it came from, if nice meant ignorant in English, you would never want to say to your wife, that's a nice dress. <laughs> so it's very important to keep word origin and word meaning, which is based on usage, 
separate from each other. Then after we look at our key terms, you know, magic, religion, science, and so forth, we'll look at how they were historically related, how they began to be differentiated, and how they can be evaluated from the perspectives of faith and reason. All right. So let's start with the term religion. How can we define religion? The etymology of religion is Latin, but exactly what it was is unclear. According to the ancient literary figure Cicero, religion comes from the root re, meaning again, and legere, meaning to read. And so according to Cicero, it originally meant something like to go through again. But other ancient authors disagree. The church fathers Lactantius and Augustine and many modern scholars think that it has a different origin in Latin. They think that the ray in religion is an intensive marker, that it makes the concept more intensive. And the other root is ligare, which is a verb that means to bind. You can hear the effects of ligare in English in words like ligament and ligature, which are things that bind. And so the idea of re ligare would mean to bind fast. And the idea perhaps might be that religion binds humans and the divine together. It binds us and God fast to each other. Today, there is no single universally agreed upon definition for religion. But over the years, I've devoted a lot of thought to the matter. And I have a definition that I use that I think captures the essence of the concept. And that definition is as follows. Religion is a system of belief about the divine and or the afterlife. Those are the two principal subjects of religion, divine and the afterlife. Now, you'll note that not all religions teach that the divine exists. For example, the original form of Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, that was taught by Siddhartha Gautama, is agnostic about whether any gods exist. According to the original Buddha, don't worry about whether there are gods. Use the Eightfold Path to stop reincarnation from happening. So you can end the cycle of rebirth by following his teachings. So he did have teachings about the afterlife, but he did not have teachings about the divine. But still, Buddhism is considered a religion. The flip side of that would be Sadducee Judaism. The Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife, but they did believe in God, and they thought any benefits you're going to get from God, you're going to get them in this life because they're, for them, they didn't believe there was an afterlife. Notice that on this definition, atheistic materialism, which rejects both the existence of God and the existence of the afterlife, would count as a religion because it takes a definite stand on the divine and the afterlife. It says there's not either. So yeah, that would be a religious, a religious view. It would be a religion. Agnosticism would be the true, not a religion view, because an agnostic could say, well, I don't know if there is a God or an afterlife. I don't know what religion is true, if any. So agnosticism would not be a religion, although you could kind of call it a religious position since it's a position on religious subjects, namely, I don't know what's true here. Right. It's a lack of a system of belief as opposed to uh, the other. Making okay. definite claims. Right. So, all right, the next term, what about the term science? How can we define science? This comes from the Latin word scientia, which means knowledge. 
And originally, science just referred to any field of knowledge. Any knowledge you had was science. So, for example, if you look at St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologia, the second question in the Summa is whether sacred doctrine is a science. And Aquinas says, yes, sacred doctrine is a, is a science. In other words, it's a form of knowledge. Over time, the term science has become more restricted in English, and it refers to in particular, what we call the natural sciences that study the natural world. So it's not it's no longer all knowledge. It's knowledge of certain things. In German, they actually have a good word that captures the original meaning of science. The word is Wissenschaft. And it Wissenschaft means knowledge making, and it covers every area of academic study. So it doesn't have to be like physics or chemistry. It can be literature or all kinds of other things. Anything you can study academically is an example of Wissenschaft. But as I said, in English, science now means pretty much the natural sciences. At least that's the way it's normally used. And it's frequently linked to what's been called the scientific method. The scientific method involves stages like observation, where you look at the world, and then theorization, where you propose an explanation for what you've seen and then experimentation to test whether your theory holds up in light of new observations or whether it doesn't hold up in light of them. But the degree to which science can be defined by this scientific method is disputed, and exactly what the scientific method consists of and how far it's actually used in science are things that people argue about. Nevertheless, uh, the Cambridge Dictionary has a good definition. Science is the careful study of the structure and behavior of the physical world, especially by watching, measuring, and doing experiments, and the development of theories to describe the results of these activities. So this is kind of a three-part definition. The first part says that science involves the careful study of the natural or physical world. Part two of the definition highlights various methods it uses, like watching, measuring, and experimenting. And then part three involves the development of theories to explain what we learn by these methods. All right. Then what about the term superstition? This is another Latin-based term. The super in superstition means above, and stare is a verb that means to stand. So etymologically, superstition would mean to stand over. And exactly why that became connected to the concept of superstition is a little unclear. It seems that to stand over may have originally indicated a state of religious awe, you know, possibly like you're, sta you're so overawed you're standing over yourself or something stand, awesome is standing over you. This is kind of like the verb or the word ecstasy, where is, which means to stand outside of yourself. And superstare seems to have originally been kind of similar. Uh, in any event, it, it was used to indicate a state of religious awe. And from there, it came to mean being in too much awe, having too much awe. Practically speaking, you know, you might say, well, how does that work? I mean, what's an example of having too much religious awe? Well, for the ancient Romans, engaging in foreign and unapproved religious rites would be an example of having too much religious awe. If you're doing foreign unapproved things you've, that are religious in nature, you've got too much religious awe. For, for a Roman, you should be doing the Roman religion stuff. If you're doing shady foreign stuff, 
you're doing too much. So as a result, the word superstition came to be applied to foreign and non-approved religious rites. For example, the Romans considered Christianity a superstition. You can see that, for example, in letter 86 by the Roman governor Pliny the Younger, when he's writing the Emperor Trajan, getting advice on what to do about Christians. He says, I thought it all the more necessary to ascertain the truth from two maidservants who were called deaconesses, even by employing torture. I found nothing other than a debased and boundless superstition. I therefore postponed the inquiry and hastened to consult you, since this issue seemed to me to merit consultation, especially because of the number indicted, for there are many of all ages, every rank, and both sexes who are summoned, and will be summoned to confront danger. The infection of this superstition has extended not merely through the cities, but also through the villages and country areas. So because Christianity, from a Roman perspective, is a foreign, unauthorized religion, Pliny is calling it a superstition. And the term superstition continues to mean a kind of excess of religion. And according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Superstition, in some sense, represents a perverse excess of religion. That's from paragraph 2110. Superstition is the deviation of religious feeling and of the practices this feeling imposes. It can even affect the worship we offer the true God. For example, when one attributes an importance in some way magical to certain practices otherwise lawful or necessary. To attribute the efficacy of prayers or of sacramental signs to their mere external performance, apart from the interior dispositions that they demand, is to fall into superstition. And that's from paragraph 2111. And that's the religious understanding of superstition, but the term can also be used in a secular sense. Uh, one definition for superstition that you'll find in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is, quote, a notion maintained despite evidence to the contrary, close quote. In other words, believing in something too much. But notice they don't make any reference to religion. So this is a kind of secular superstitious definition. And that could include things like believing in luck or being afraid of the number 13. Even though those aren't considered religious concepts by people today, you can still be superstitious about, you know, getting good luck or avoiding the number 13. Then there are what you could call scientific superstitions. Now, the classic example of this is snake oil. Back in the 19th century, there were these medicine shows that would travel around and sell people patent medicines, the most famous of which was Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment. And because these medicines didn't work, typically, or at least didn't have all of the effects they were claimed to, snake oil became um, kind of a byword for fraudulent medicine. That's kind of ironic because Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment actually had valid active ingredients. It had capsaicin and camphor in it, which would relieve your sore muscles since it was a <laughs> liniment. So actually, the original snake oil did have effect. And another example that's very common today, every year or two, there's a new superfood that if you just eat this superfood, it will do all these great things for you. And that's another example of superstition of a scientific nature. These foods don't really have all the amazing nutritional effects that they're supposed to. And these things are often called junk science. Uh, you'll also sometimes hear the term a pathological science and pseudoscience. So those are all variations of kind of scientific superstition. One consequence 
of superstition, whether it's religious or secular, is that it has a kind of hodgepodge or grab bag character. Anything you believe in too much is superstition, and people do that on lots of random topics. So there are lots of random superstitions. Whether something is a superstition thus has to be examined on a case-by-case basis. And that makes it hard to give a kind of systematic definition of superstition because of this grab bag character. And it's often easier to just list a bunch of superstitions to give people an idea. Superstitions include things like In a religious case, thinking that if you say a particular prayer or if you say it a certain number of times, it's guaranteed to be granted or that wearing a particular religious medal or scapular will automatically produce certain results or burying a St. Joseph statue upside down in your yard will get your house to sell or in in non-clearly religious things, you know, fear of black cats or the number 13, carrying a lucky item or thinking that the horoscope column in the newspaper really foretells your future. Those are all just a grab bag of things that people attribute too much significance to, or believe in too much. And we'll see that something very similar applies in our next concept, magic. Okay, so is there an agreed-upon definition for magic? No, magic is one of the hardest terms to define, and scholars have proposed a whole bunch of definitions. As we covered in episode 75 on the Magi from the Bible, the term magic comes from the name of an ancient Medo-Persian tribe, the Magi. They were a priestly tribe that had religious functions, kind of like the tribe of Levi in Israel. The Greek term Magia and its Latin equivalent Magia just meant those things that magi do, in other words, their rituals and practices. This included things like presiding over Medo-Persian sacrifices, interpreting dreams, and foretelling the future based on signs in the sky. All those were things that magi did. But here's the thing. The Greeks and the Romans did the exact same stuff. You know, Greek and Roman priests presided over sacrifices. In fact, the Roman emperor was the chief priest in Rome and would personally preside over sacrifices. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about Caligula and how on the day he was assassinated, he was actually splattered with blood from a flamingo that he was sacrificing as a Roman priest. Greco-Roman authorities also interpreted dreams. Uh, For example, according to Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Caesars, Julius Caesar had a dream where he... um, offered violence to his mother, to put it delicately, since this is a family show. And he consulted the soothsayers about this dream, and they interpreted it to mean that he would rule the entire world since the world is the mother of us all. Finally, Greco-Roman authorities also foretold the future, including based on signs in the sky, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus's, he was the Augustus's successor, so he's two down from Julius. He had a personal astrologer named Thrasyllus who made many predictions for him, and we'll also be mentioning Thrasyllus in our upcoming episode on Caligula. So it wasn't the activities themselves that were considered magic, you know, sacrificing, interpreting dreams, interpreting signs from the heavens. You know, those were not themselves magic. It's the fact they were done by foreigners like the Magi that got them classified as magic. So magic came to be understood as foreign or unapproved religious rites and practices. And that ought to sound familiar because it's it's like one of the same concepts in superstition. You know, if you have too much religious awe for foreign unapproved rites, that's superstitious. Well, magic and superstition 
naturally have kind of been two peas in a pod. They're very closely linked. They're almost two sides of the same coin. If people something if people regard something as magic, it'd often be called superstitious. And if they regarded something as superstitious, they'd often regard it as magical. This means that both magic and superstition were largely disreputable in the Greco-Roman world. You know, since the Greeks and Romans weren't into modern self-loathing political correctness, they were actually proud of their cultures. In fact, a little too proud. And that meant that they had at least some suspicion of foreign cultures. So if something was foreign, it's automatically a little shady. And so any foreign religious rites would be considered shady, not the kind of thing a proper Greek or Roman would normally do. But at the same time, foreign and unapproved things were by nature exotic, and the exotic can be compelling. So even though these were kind of shady, there was still a market for magic in the Greco-Roman world. Um, and you see the same kind of thing today. If you're driving around a major city, you'll notice that there is this kind of underground occult market. You'll see that the palm readers and the psychics and the botanicas are all usually set up in the more run-down neighborhoods rather than in the newly renovated upscale neighborhoods. And finally, the, the connection with superstition also, you know, superstition has this kind of grab bag character, and so does magic. Uh, that means it's hard to um, give a satisfying definition for magic in a, in a modern context. Often the best you can do when talking about magic today is give a list of practices that are considered magical. The problem has been especially difficult in recent centuries as we've gotten more distance from the origin of the term in the Magi and their practices. Basically, at least historically, magic was an unapproved and often foreign religious ritual. Have there been other attempts to define magic besides unapproved and possibly foreign rites? Yeah. Um, in the last couple of centuries, scholars have tried a bunch of different definitions. Some of them proceed from ideological positions that don't really capture the essence of magic historically. For example, uh, there are so-called evolutionary definitions that propose that magic is inherently primitive and that it precedes organized religion, which itself precedes science. So you have this orderly evolution from magic to religion to science. But this reflects an ideology of scientism, and it has two big problems. Uh, first, there are some questions that the natural sciences cannot address, like the divine and the afterlife, since neither is subject to laboratory testing, or why the natural world and the laws that govern it exist at all. You know, science can't empirically establish that because it's confined to observing the natural world. It can't look behind nature to see why nature exists and, and why these laws govern it. And so those are properly fields of, you know, belong to fields of study like religion and philosophy. Secondly, it ignores the historical meaning of the term magic, which was not originally separate from religion. It just meant somebody else's religion. I mean, originally the religion of the Magi and later, you know, more broadly, any religion that's not yours. Another type of definition that's been offered recently are so-called psychological definitions, which hold that magic is a natural product of humans need to feel safe and secure in a dangerous world. So we're led to 
conduct magical practices to give us a sense of security and control. But this, again, it doesn't clearly separate magic from religion or science. People also gain comfort in an uncertain world from both religion and science. Praying to God or the gods and taking medicines and developing technology all help people feel more secure. So we get the same psychological benefits from religion and science that we do magic. Um, and, of course, the psychological views also ignore the history of the term. Some people have tried to define magic in social terms so that they'll say, well, religious rites are what are done for the benefit of the community, but magical rites are done for the benefit of the individual. And there's an element of truth here. Since magic was considered foreign and shady, it was often done by individuals for their personal benefit, not something that you'd have the main temple in a city doing. You know, if, the, if you're a Greek and your main temple is to Zeus, let's say, you're not going to have rites from Persia being performed at your main temple. You as an individual might do this Persian thing, but your community wouldn't. And so, you know, there is an aspect of truth here, but it's it's not a sharp distinction because the established right religious rights in your area could also be for personal benefit. I mean, if you're in the Greco-Roman world as an individual, you could go to the Temple of Zeus or Diana and pray and give offerings for the same things you might want to go to a practitioner of magic for. And again, you're seeking your own personal benefit. You're asking Zeus to bless you or Diana to bless you or whatever. It's just in a socially approved way. So this distinction between magic is personal, whereas religion is communal, it doesn't really work because you can do the same things as an individual in a religious context that you would also want a magician to help you with. Have there been attempts to define magic in terms of its goals, like putting hexes on people? Yeah, and this leads people to start arguing about a distinction between so-called black magic and white magic. Uh, black magic is said to hurt people, like, you know, putting a curse or a hex on them. White magic is supposed to help people, like doing a, a healing spell to get them over an illness. So these goal-directed definitions don't really get at the underlying phenomenon of what magic is supposed to be. They just classify it as having, you know, good and bad effects in the white-black distinction. What about the nature of the act that a magician performs in a ritual? Could you define magic based on certain actions? You do today sometimes see definitions of magic that proceed by listing examples, like saying, okay, well, magic involves casting spells and brewing potions and making voodoo dolls and things like that. This type of definition is what's called an ostensive definition, since it just lists examples. This kind of definition also isn't really that helpful because it doesn't get at the essence of what a phenomenon is. Uh, the, the definitions that do try to describe the essence of a, of a phenomenon are known as intentional definitions rather than ostensive definitions. And they're generally preferred because they, they get to the heart of matters better rather than just listing a bunch of examples. Well, in that case, are there any promising intentional definitions? One that some people have proposed is based on the source of power that magic is supposed to tap into. For example, 
Uh, some have proposed that magic involves a hidden power, force, or energy that is part of the world and that magicians are able to manipulate for various effects. Uh, thus, by speaking the words of a spell, um, you'd be manipulating this magical force to get it to do what you want, whether it's helping somebody or harming somebody. This is sometimes expressed with the phrase, the word is the deed, that by saying these words, you accomplish the deed by manipulating this force. And various names have been given to this force, but none of them is universally accepted. One advantage that this definition would have is that it has the potential to create a bright line between religion and magic. For example, it would allow us to sharply differentiate between spells and prayers. In a spell, you'd be manipulating this impersonal force to achieve the effect, but in a prayer, you'd be asking a conscious being, like God or one of the gods or an angel or a spirit, to accomplish the effect for you. So a spell would involve manipulating a force. A prayer would be talking to a conscious being. You can stipulate that this is the definition of magic you're using if you want, um, but then you can stipulate anything as a definition. You know, like in Alice in Wonderland, words exactly mean exactly what I say they mean. But this would be a new modern definition for magic if you're defining it in terms of this hidden force. It doesn't correspond to how the word magia was used in antiquity. Lots of the rituals in ancient magic involved making requests of conscious entities like gods and angels and demons. On the other hand, there are also texts that speak as if there is some kind of hidden force in nature that the gods can manipulate. Thus, you had deities that were especially skilled in magic, like the Egyptian Isis and Thoth, and also the Greek Hecate. So they were deities of magic and apparently had extra magical skills, apparently by manipulating some force. The ancient conception of magic didn't really distinguish between these views. For the ancients, magic sometimes involved talking to a conscious being and asking them to grant your request, but also sometimes it involved manipulating a hidden force in the world. And that brings us back to the sociological definition of magic as a shady, unauthorized, and often foreign rite. That definition really does capture what the ancients meant when they used the term magic, though you can stipulate other definitions if you like. All right. And then what about the term psychic? Where does that come from? It's based on the Greek word psuche, which means things like life, life principle, soul, or even person. But in the ancient world, it didn't mean what it means today. If you ask the ancients what they thought about psychic phenomena, they wouldn't think you were talking about things like telepathy or telekinesis. They would think you were talking about phenomena that are somehow connected with life or souls. The modern sense of the term was coined in the 1870s, so just very recently. And it was used to describe various reported phenomena of a mental nature, things that people could do with their minds, supposedly, like telepathy, telekinesis, precognition, dowsing, and, and similar things. This understanding proposes that the mind has powers that we're not normally aware of. And on some understandings, these powers are purely natural in origin. For example, some in the 20th century tried to explain telepathy as a form of mental radio, 
And they meant that really literally. People in the 20th century investigated the idea that telepathy is based on one person's brain sending or receiving electromagnetic waves, you know, because there is an electrical you know, basis to to how our brain operates. It does generate electromagnetic waves. And so some people said, well, maybe that's the, that's what explains telepathy. It's literally mental radio waves. Others more recently have tried to link psychic phenomena to undiscovered or poorly understood principles in nature, such as phenomena related to quantum mechanics. But on the other hand, the term psychic is also sometimes connected with the supernatural. For example, mediums are supposed to contact the spirits of the dead or angelic spirits, and those are more naturally understood as involving the supernatural, not just the natural. So the term psychic today can be understood in more than one way. Some understand it as involving poorly understood aspects of nature, but others include elements of the supernatural in psychic phenomena. All right. So those are our definitions. You said earlier that after we looked at our key terms, we'd look at how they were related and how they came to be differentiated and how we can evaluate them from the perspectives of faith and reason. So let's start on that. How were they originally related and how did they come to be differentiated? From what we can tell, there doesn't appear to have originally been a great deal of specialization in knowledge or a big division of labor in human communities. Back in the hunter-gatherer days, before the Neolithic Revolution and the development of agriculture, everyone basically had the same job. You were a hunter-gatherer. That's what you did for a living. There was a division of labor between the sexes uh, because, you know, and you can see that based on the physical differences of men and women. Women are biologically evolved to specialize in childcare in a way men aren't, and men are biologically evolved to specialize in things like hunting and warfare in a way that women aren't. Also, since humans organize in groups, there was a division between the leaders in a tribe of hunter-gatherers and the followers in the tribe. But the leaders also did the same basic work as everybody else. Everybody was a hunter-gatherer. Some were just the boss hunter-gatherers. With the development of agriculture, people began to produce enough food that not everybody had to have the same job. And that led to a greater specialization of labor Leaders became detached from the work that everybody else did. So did religious leaders, which is where we got priests. And some people became professional soldiers, giving us armies instead of, you know, farming. And then there were also various trades like metalworking that got invented. This division of labor led people to specialize in particular fields of knowledge. So if you were a priest, you needed to know different things than if you were a metal worker. And these different fields of knowledge that were developing could be broadly lumped into two categories, the normal and the paranormal. Normal categories of learning centered around the normal operations of nature, so that's things like farming and metalworking, while the paranormal ones dealt with things that are alongside nature. In Greek, para means alongside, and so these would be things that are alongside nature, but are still somehow distinct from it. And the work of a priest would fall into this category. He's not just dealing with crops and copper, he's dealing with the gods, so that's or the spirits, so that's alongside nature. But even then, the natural and the paranormal were not clearly separated. If you if you look back at the records we have, I mean, farmers would perform all kinds of prayers and rituals 
to ensure the success of their crops. I mean, they recognized that natural things like weather played a big role in whether the crops would succeed, but they thought that the gods and spirits intervened really directly in the weather all the time. And so you couldn't predict what the weather would do if you didn't constantly appeal to the gods or the spirits for their assistance. That's different than the Christian understanding. Christians understand that while God is behind the natural world, he lets it operate in a largely predictable way according to laws that he's embedded in it. So God loves everybody, Jesus says, and thus he predictably sends rain on the righteous and the wicked, even if the wicked aren't asking him to all the time. On the other hand, he can intervene in the weather sometimes if he if he chooses. Now, one field that in the ancient world was particularly muddled when it came to the natural and the supernatural or the normal and the paranormal was medicine. There had always been a recognition that there were certain natural aspects to medicine. You know, people knew how to set a bone. They knew that a certain herb was useful for treating a medical condition. But ancient medicine was also really bound up with appeals to gods and spirits and with incantations and astrology and other paranormal things. Also, since you can use medicines to hurt people as well as help them, magic and medicine were also bound up in poisoning people. And poisoners would like say prayers and spells when they were helping you poison someone. And we'll also mention that again in a couple of weeks in our episode on Caligula, who may have been poisoned at one point. Gradually, over the centuries, the key terms that we were investigating began to be differentiated and become recognized as things on their own. The first to do so was religion. You had specialists in religion, whether you call them priests or shamans or medicine men or whatever else, before any any of the other fields had specialists. This kind of specialist may even predate agriculture. Originally, even though the Latin-based term religion hadn't yet been coined, there were people who specialized in this and who were considered authoritative on anything and everything paranormal. And that would include things that later would be called superstitious or magical or psychic. But people recognized that not all the claims about the paranormal were equal. They recognized that we should accept some paranormal claims, but not others. And that led them to recognize superstition very early on. So superstition began to separate from what was considered proper religion. In the first millennium BC, the Medo-Persian tribe of the Magi became known in the Greek-speaking world, and so magic entered the vocabulary originally just as what the Magi do, and then as any un- unauthorized, usually foreign religious practice that was then closely linked with superstition. So we had the word magic coming into the vocabulary. The foundations of what we now call science, though, are a little bit different. Science as a the term science is actually really recent with its modern meaning. I mean, the roots of science had always been there. You know, even since Paleolithic days, people knew about plants and animals. And you could say, well, that's a kind of science. Then as they developed, you know, metallurgy, they learned about metals. As they studied the sky, they started to learn aspects of astronomy, which was still mixed up with astrology at the time. But science as a field hadn't yet really become a concept. In the Greek world, much of what we now consider science was actually placed under the heading of philosophy. That's why if you read Aristotle's writings, 
He's got discussions of physics and astronomy and geology and biology and psychology, you know, all fields that are now sciences. They were just considered part of philosophy. And in fact, for a long time, what we now call natural science was called natural philosophy. Then after the scientific revolution began in the 1600s, you know, the discoveries in the in these areas began to accelerate and the terminology started to shift and the Latin term scientia, which had long been used to refer to knowledge in general, came to mean the knowledge gained by the natural sciences in particular. And even as late as the 1800s, natural philosophy was still a very common term, but the term natural science was starting to take over. As this happened, the paranormal elements of the sciences got skimmed out. So medicine ceased to involve incantations and astrology. The study of the stars got split into astronomy and astrology. Alchemy got separated from chemistry and things like that. This differentiation of natural and supernatural elements or normal and paranormal elements led people by the 1800s to wonder, are there other things that we need to separate in this way? You know, if astronomy had this natural and or normal and paranormal component, maybe some of these other phenomena do too, like telepathy or precognition. And so by the, 19, by the 1870s, the term psychic came to be used for things that were paranormal, but might have a natural explanation, like we saw with the mental radio understanding of telepathy. But thus far, psychic hasn't yet shed all of its supernatural associations, and so the study of psychic phenomena is still classified as a paranormal field. So that's a basic sketch of how religion, magic, science, and psychic stuff all came to be differentiated. Okay. All right. So before we get into our faith and reason perspective, I do want to take a moment here to thank our patrons who make Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World possible, including uh, this week, Alfredo B., Ed B., Mary V., Miguel G., and Donna P. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, let's continue with our discussion on uh, religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. What can we say about these concepts from the reason perspective? Uh, let's start with religion. What can we say about religion? Well, despite what you may have heard, there's actually quite a lot you can say about religion from the reason perspective, and that's discussed in fields like philosophy of religion, natural theology, and apologetics. Obviously, not every religious idea is correct, but they can be explored from the reason perspective. And then once you've used reason to establish the basics of what religious positions are true, that's when the faith perspective takes over. Okay. So then what can we say about science from the reason perspective? Science obviously relies heavily on a reason, and it's been very productive in the last couple of centuries. But not every idea that gets proposed in, psychic, in scientific circles is true. In fact, there's currently a crisis 
in science uh, in fields ranging from physics to psychology and sociology, so all the way from the hard sciences to the soft sciences. We'll be discussing the crisis in science in future episodes, but for the moment, it suffices to note that it exists and so that e even though science has been very productive for us and has allowed us to develop a lot of technology, it's still something that you can't just unthinkingly trust. Uh, in fact, it, a majority of scientific studies turn out to be premature and inaccurate. Okay. Uh, what about superstition? From the reason perspective, superstition is believing in something too much, and that's unreasonable, so superstition bad. Okay. What does reason have to say about magic? There's a good bit of overlap between magic and superstition, and obviously reason doesn't support superstition, but... Just because a, rit a ritual is considered shady, unauthorized, or foreign doesn't mean it doesn't work. And so consequently, we can't, by reason, automatically rule out particular magical practices. We're going to need to look to the faith perspective for further clarification about whether a particular ritual is reasonable or not. Okay. And then what does reason have to say about psychic phenomena? This is a really interesting subject. I've recently done a good bit of study on these re scientific studies that people have been doing on psychic phenomena, and I've been very surprised by some of the things that the recent studies have suggested. We will be talking about that in future episodes, but despite what some people have been claiming in recent studies, you know, we noted there is this crisis in science, and so the studies that have been done of psychic phenomena are themselves open to challenge. And the existence of psychic phenomena, if it exists, is still sufficiently undocumented that psychic studies remain part of fringe science, basically. They're not considered well-established and well-accepted. Okay. So now let's turn to our faith perspective and what we can say about these key concepts from that. What about religion? Obviously, from the faith perspective, there's a lot to say about religion, and there's so much it goes beyond the uh, <laughs> goes beyond what we can cover in this show. <laughs> right. Okay. Then, what about science? The church has healthy respect for the natural sciences, uh, while also recognizing that not everything can be morally justified in the name of science. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states: Basic scientific research, as well as applied research, is a significant expression of man's dominion over creation. Science and technology are precious resources when placed at the service of man and promote his integral development for the benefit of all. By themselves, however, they cannot disclose the meaning of existence and of human progress. Science and technology are ordered to man, from whom they take their origin and development. Hence, they find in the person and in his moral values both evidence of their purpose and awareness of their limits. The Catechism also has other positive things to say about science, but it recognizes the dangers that modern science and technology have, including the creation of weapons of mass destruction, immoral medical procedures, immoral ex human experimentation, and things like that. All right. What about superstition? Well, the Catechism naturally rejects superstition. In paragraph 2110, the first commandment prescribes superstition and irreligion. Superstition, in some sense, represents a perverse excess of religion. Irreligion is the vice contrary by defect to the virtue of religion. Superstition is the deviation of religious feeling and of the practices this feeling imposes. It can even affect the worship we offer the true God, for example, 
when one attributes an importance in some way magical to certain practices otherwise lawful or necessary. To attribute the efficacy of prayers or of sacramental signs to their mere external performance, apart from the interior dispositions that they demand, is to fall into superstition. Notice how the Catechism links superstition to magical thinking about certain practices, just like magic and superstition were overlapping in the ancient world. The Catechism also notes that people can be superstitious about things that are fine in principle, like when a person thinks saying a prayer will be automatically effective just because you say it, apart from what's happening in your heart, or, though the Catechism doesn't mention it here, apart from whether it's God's will to grant the prayer. I think this statement is at least partially directed against some of the no-fail novenas that people advertise as always bringing the desired result. You know, I think the catechism, without naming them, is saying that kind of stuff is superstitious. The difficulty, or one difficulty with superstition, is that it can take so many different forms. It's not possible to give a definitive list, and whether a person is believing in something too much has to be handled on a case-by-case basis. All right, so I'm guessing the catechism doesn't have a positive view of magic. Uh, You would be right. Here's what the catechism has to say. All practices of magic or sorcery by which one attempts to tame occult powers so as to place them at one's service and have a supernatural power over others, even if this were for the sake of restoring their health, are gravely contrary to the virtue of religion. These practices are even more to be condemned when accompanied by the intention of harming someone or when they have recourse to the intervention of demons. Wearing charms is also reprehensible. Spiritism often implies divination or magical practices. The church, for her part, warns the faithful against it. Recourse to so-called traditional cures does not justify either the invocation of evil powers or the exploitation of another's credulity. There are several things about this passage that are interesting. One is that it gives what you could consider a definition of magic. It refers to magic, quote, by which one attempts to tame occult powers so as to place them at one's service and have a supernatural power over others, close quote. That would seem to be at least an approximate definition, even if it's not a technical one. Jimmy, I want to make a distinction perhaps for Mm -hmm. the listeners, too. Magic here is not stage magic per se, like which is no, 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 essentially no, no. illusion, uh, making you know, yeah. doing illusions. Yeah, and that's something we could have mentioned. I probably should have thought to mention at the beginning of this episode is when we talk about magic here, we don't mean stage magic. Okay, we'll have other episodes on that and its history. <laughs> Excellent. But another thing that's interesting about this paragraph is precisely what it means by occult powers is ambiguous. It would certainly include. In you know, things like intelligent entities that are hidden, you know, real ones like demons, but also other kinds of spirits like the gods of pagan religions or things like that, you know, trying to appeal to and tame occult powers like those would be part of what's magical here. It's not clear to me whether this is envisioning the kind of impersonal force that we talked about earlier that some have proposed. It might be, and that's been part of some understandings of magic, but we need to be a little careful here. Occult, or in Latin, occultus, it just means hidden. And we can't just automatically condemn any hidden power or force, because there are hidden forces in the world, things that we don't normally perceive or interact with, 
And those include the four fundamental forces that are known to the sciences, you know, electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and gravity. We're aware of these today, but the ancients weren't. They didn't have these concepts. And it would have been a mistake for them to say, oh, there can't be any hidden forces in nature. Well, here are four that we now know about. Even today, their operations remain hidden from most people. I mean, many people don't even know that the strong and weak nuclear forces exist. But as science has progressed, these hidden forces have been revealed, and we now understand them to a substantial degree and can interact with them. And the church doesn't have a problem with that. It doesn't say your iPhone is magic and must be rejected because it uses electromagnetism, and that was a hidden force 500 years ago. And that means we need to be careful about how we understand hidden forces because there could simply, there could be additional things about nature that we haven't discovered. In fact, there's recent stories in the scientific press that we may have found evidence of a fifth force, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And in three weeks, we're going to be talking about the fact we don't know what 96% of everything is made of. There may be tons of new physics and forces out there that we presently have no clue about. So we really have to be careful. You can't just say, oh, it's a hidden force, therefore it's magic and you can't interact with it. There may be a lot of stuff in nature that is yet to be discovered. And this kind of brings up a point that we need to keep in mind when reading the catechism. The purpose of a catechism is to give basic instruction in the faith. It is not to answer every question you could possibly ask. And that means that you shouldn't try to take the catechism and press it into addressing subjects that it's just not addressing, that it's not trying to answer. And so by saying we need to stay away from magic, what the catechism means is it's warning us away from the stuff that's traditionally considered magic. It's not condemning the idea that the world might contain forces that are presently uh, hidden from us, but that we might one day discover and then use to help run the next generation of iPhones. Another interesting aspect of the paragraph on magic in the catechism is that it says you can't use magic even for beneficial purposes like healing people. So it rejects the white magic distinction. I mean, it may acknowledge that You can classify magic that way, but you can't use it just because you're trying to help someone doesn't make this legitimate. There's also a bit of a a translation problem when it says wearing charms is reprehensible. An overly strict reading of that might make you think, oh, you can't wear a charm bracelet, even if you don't attribute any significance to the charms and you just treat them like fashion accessories. You know, a lot of people who wear charm bracelets, they don't think this is going to really bring me luck or anything. They're just wearing it because they think it's a pretty bracelet. That's because the word charm in English has taken on this secular meaning of like a little bangle, a little object you might wear for fashion purposes. And that's not what the catechism is talking about. In Latin, what it says is the wearing of amulets, amuleta is reprehensible. And amulets are something more specific than just charms. They're objects that you wear specifically for the purpose of warding off harmful influences by supernatural power. So this may be a bit uncomfortable for for some. Don't many Christians wear things like miraculous medals and scapulars for somewhat similar reason? 
Yeah. You, and so are those amulets or not? Well, it's true. Christians do. It's, and it's not just Catholics. Other Christians, including Orthodox and Anglicans and some Lutherans, do the same thing. And we're looking at something that you have to think carefully about because there is potential to use these as magical objects. Uh, the Catechism said earlier that superstition can involve magical thinking about objects. So if you're thinking that a metal or a scapular will automatically have its effect regardless of the, your spiritual state or God's will, then you are thinking magically about it. And for you, it is both magical and superstitious. You're treating it like an amulet. Consequently, if you don't want to do that, if you want to wear them reverently, then you need to understand that wearing such objects is basically a kind of enacted prayer. By wearing the object, you're asking God to protect you and give you his grace. But whether that happens depends on whether you're being reverent towards God and on what his will is for our lives. So just wearing this thing isn't going to magically have an effect. All right. Uh, I remember stories of people like, oh, uh, I gave this to my grandson who doesn't believe anymore. And he, wear, he puts the scapula in his pocket and it protects him, even though he doesn't believe in God and that sort of thing. That was kind of the example of that. It could be, although even then, if you have given it to him as an act of prayer and are not thinking the the metal or whatever that he's wearing is of itself doing anything, but you've given it to him and said, please wear this for my sake, and this is your way of asking God to protect him, mm. then it could for you just be a prayer. Excellent. That's a good distinction. Uh, all right. So the Catechism also discusses spiritism in this paragraph. Is there anything significant about that, what it says there? Yeah, I was really surprised when I stopped to analyze this statement word by word. It's surprisingly nuanced. Let's hear it again. Spiritism often implies divination or magical practices. The church, for her part, warns the faithful against it. Yeah, I'm really surprised at how qualified this is. First, it says spiritism often implies divination or magical practices. So divination is foretelling the future. And spiritism does sometimes involve that. You know, a medium may try to get information about the future out of a spirit. And it sometimes involves magic. You could, like, cast spells to conjure uh, a spirit or a demon. But the fact the catechism says it often involves these recognizes that it doesn't always. And that's true. You know, sometimes a medium will contact a spirit without using a spell and without trying to find out anything about the future. So spiritism, interestingly, doesn't always involve magical practices, but it doesn't matter because the catechism says that the church, for her part, warns the faithful against it. And the word for warns in Latin is monet, which is a standard word for warn. But that's actually softer than I would have expected, um, because warning isn't the same thing as forbidding. Warning means something's dangerous, but it's not an absolute prohibition. Your doctor might warn you against eating too much, but that doesn't mean you you know can't have an extra helping once in a while, like on Thanksgiving or Christmas. So warning doesn't mean an absolute prohibition. But spiritism is expressly forbidden in the Bible. And I'm a little surprised they didn't just flat out say spiritism is always to be condemned. You know, I would have been inclined to say something like that. Hmm. This paragraph in the Catechism also discusses traditional cures. Is there anything we should note about that? 
Yeah, it says recourse to so-called traditional cures does not justify either the invocation of evil powers or the exploitation of another's credulity. This is another place where we have to read the catechism carefully and in context. Note that the context is magic. This paragraph is part of the section titled Divination and Magic, and specifically it's the paragraph on magic. So the catechism isn't condemning all traditional cures. In fact, if you look at the Latin, what it says is artes medicas quae traditionales dicuntur, which means medical arts which are called traditional. So traditional cures is kind of an English simplification of that. But what the catechism is saying is that recourse to medical arts, which are called traditional or considered traditional, doesn't justify doing these two things. So it if it turns out, you know, that a particular plant that's used in traditional medic- medicine has a real therapeutic effect, then you could use it just not magically. For example, in traditional medicine, people have chewed willow bark to relieve headaches and fever, and it works. That's because even though they didn't know it back then, willow bark contains salicin which is an anti-inflammatory compound with properties very similar to acetyl salicylic acid, better known to us today as aspirin. And so you could chew willow bark to get the same effects as aspirin. What the catechism is condemning when it refers to these traditional medical practices is ones that are magical. And it gives two examples. The first are traditional medical practices that involve evil powers. So, you know, asking a demon to do something for you. Or, the, this is the second example it gives, traditional medical practices that exploit another person's credulity. That is, things that the practitioner knows don't actually have a therapeutic effect, and he's just fooling the patient because this is not going to help. He's just treating the patient to get money or something. You mentioned that this section in the catechism is titled Divination and Magic. What does it have to say about divination? A good bit. First, though, it's important to bear in mind that in Latin, the word the catechism uses for divination, divinatio, means the act of foretelling the future. And the catechism will say that divination is bad, but we have to be careful how we understand this because not all predicting the future is bad. Uh, In fact, humans are wired to predict the future by purely natural means. We predict that if we drop a stone, it'll fall to the ground. We predict if you put your hand in the fire, it's going to hurt. We predict the weather. We predict the outcome of battles. We predict the results of elections. Humans are prediction machines, and we are better at it than any other creature on Earth. But the Catechism is not talking about natural predictions. That's not what divination is. The divination it will condemn involves the supernatural prediction of the future. And even then, the Catechism doesn't condemn all means of supernaturally obtaining information about the future. It says, God can reveal the future to his prophets or to other saints. Still, a sound Christian attitude consists in putting oneself confidently into the hands of providence for whatever concerns the future and giving up all unhealthy curiosity about it. Improvidence, however, can constitute a lack of responsibility. So you can supernaturally learn about the future if God reveals it. 
But if God doesn't choose to reveal the future, you need to be content with that because a sound Christian attitude consists of putting oneself confidently in the hands of providence. At the same time, that doesn't mean you shouldn't use natural means that God has given you to make predictions, because failing to rationally take into account what you can deduce about the future can constitute a lack of responsibility, according to the Catechism. So you need to use reason to predict the future and be responsible in planning for it, And you can learn supernaturally about the future if God chooses, but if he doesn't choose to, then don't use other supernatural means. So he's given us two legitimate ways of predicting the future, naturally based on the gift of reason and supernaturally based on divine revelation. This recalls the historic definition we mentioned for magic earlier, you know, unauthorized religious practice. Divine revelation is the authorized way for us to supernaturally learn about the future. All other means of supernaturally learning about the future are unauthorized, and that's the divination that the catechism is going to condemn. So here's what it says. All forms of divination are to be rejected. Recourse to Satan or demons, conjuring up the dead, or other practices falsely supposed to unveil the future. Consulting horoscopes, astrology, palm reading, interpretation of omens and lots, the phenomena of clairvoyance, and recourse to mediums all conceal a desire for power over time, history, and in the last analysis, other human beings, as well as a wish to conciliate hidden powers. They contradict the honor, respect, and loving fear that we owe to God alone. Here, the Catechism lists three principal types of divination. The first is contacting demons, which sometimes people have to try to learn about the future. The second is conjuring up the dead. And as we noted, mediums do sometimes try to get information about the future from the dead. The third is a catch-all category that refers to other practices supposed to falsely supposed to unveil the future. And since this last category involves those that are falsely supposed to unveil the future, that means these practices don't actually work. So you got these three things, talking to demons, that may work, talking to spirits, you know, conjuring the dead, that may work. And then this third thing, anything else that really actually doesn't work for finding out about the future. The catechism then makes a very interesting statement. Let's hear that one again. Consulting horoscopes, astrology, palm reading, interpretation of omens and lots, the phenomena of clairvoyance, and recourse to mediums all conceal a desire for power over time, history, and in the last analysis, other human beings, as well as a wish to conciliate hidden powers. In context, the purpose of this sentence seems to be to give a list of practices that are falsely supposed to unveil the future. So it's expanding on that third category, uh, as well as to explain what's wrong with these practices. And it gives two reasons why they're wrong. Uh, the first is that they conceal a desire for power over time, history, and in the last analysis, other human beings. Now, God's already given us the gift of reason so that we can make predictions, so it's not wrong to do that. But what the catechism means is that, in this statement, is that it's unhealthy to have too much of a desire for control, to not put your hand in, yourself in God's providential hands. And the kind of excessive 
curiosity and excessive desire for control that leads you to consult horoscopes and interpret omens and go to mediums and stuff like that. That's that's an unhealthy form of curiosity and an unhealthy form of desire for control that leads people to do these practices. The other thing that the catechism says is wrong with them is that they can conceal a wish to conciliate hidden powers like pacifying a demon or another spirit and getting it to do what you want. There are also some interesting things about the list of practices that it gives. One is that the list is not exhaustive. There are other forms of divination, like horuspicy, which is divination by examining the entrails of animals. That was very common in the ancient world, but it's not so common today, so I guess that's why the catechism doesn't list it. It's also interesting that it lists consulting horoscopes and astrology separately. Um, There is a technical distinction between these two things. You know, consulting horoscopes is part of astrology, but not all of it. Um, But it's just kind of interesting that it lists them separately. If you're interested in learning more about astrology, check out episode 23 of Mysterious World, where we talk about that and give a Christian perspective on it. Also, listen to the end of episode 36 on Skinwalker Ranch, because at the end, in the mysterious headlines and feedback section, we talk about a scientific basis for something that is similar, but not the same as astrology. Basically, what we talked about was scientific findings that, depending on when you're conceived, your mother and where, whether you live in the northern or southern hemisphere and where, your mom will get more or less vitamin D while you're in utero, and that can have an impact on childhood development and even adult psychology. So when you were born, it's not because of the stars or the planets. It's because of how much of our star, the sun, your mom got, can actually have an influence on life outcomes. So you, you can look at time of, time of birth as an indicator, but not for the reasons astrologers propose. The Catechism also mentions the practice of palm reading or chiromantia, which is a common form of trying to tell someone's future. And then it mentions interpreting omens. That's inter- in Latin, it's interpretatio agoriorum, and also interpretation of lots, interpretatio sortium. And this is interesting that it would, it would reject these because both of them have parallels in the Old Testament. An omen is a sign that something will or won't happen. And in Genesis, uh, you look in Genesis 24, Abraham's servant asks for God for a sign to identify the woman that God has chosen to be the wife of Isaac. Similarly, in Judges 6, Gideon uses a fleece to get a couple of signs from God about to confirm that God will deliver Israel by his hand. So you've got biblical figures asking God for omens and God giving them. The casting of lots is also something that has a parallel in the Bible. Uh, The high priest used the ephod and the Urim and Thummim, which were essentially lots to inquire of God. Similarly, Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is holy from the Lord. And the casting of lots is a practice known as sortilage. Uh, It involves 
using, you know, lots or other random elements and then interpreting their meaning. So this seems to be another case where the unauthorized authorized distinction is important. If you turn to God and ask him to reveal his will to you by controlling the outcome of events, whether it's the casting of a lot or another sign, it's potentially authorized because God did that in the Bible. He even did it in the New Testament when the apostles used lots to determine the successor of Judas. But apart from seeking God's will, this is going to be unauthorized divination. So maybe it's justifiable when you're using it to seek God's will, but not otherwise. Uh, There's more to be said about that, and some Christians argue that we shouldn't even use such practices today, that Pentecost marked a division once the Holy Spirit was given, so such practices shouldn't be used. That's an argument we can discuss in the future, but just want to note it for now. The next thing that the Catechism rejects is the phenomena of clairvoyance. And here we hit another translation problem. In English, clairvoyance refers to the ability to see things that are not immediately present. So like you could view a remote city that you're not in. That would be clairvoyance. The etymology of the word clairvoyance, it comes from French, and it means clear seeing. And anything that you can see clearly at it, you know, without it being immediately present, that's clairvoyance. But that doesn't mean predicting the future, which is what divination is. I mean, sometimes you might clearly see the future, but that's not all of clairvoyance. So so this term seems to be too broad in English for what the catechism is saying. In the original French edition of the catechism, the word that's used here is voyance, which I suppose is why they picked clairvoyance in English, but voyance in French, from what I've been able to tell, means fortune-telling, which involves predicting the future. This is indicated even more clearly in the authoritative Latin text, where the practice that's being rejected is called previsiones. And prevision, or previsiones, means seeing the future, Um, you know, vision of the future. That's the pre part through occult or supernatural means. So I think the English translators would have done better if they had translated this as precognition. Finally, the catechism refers to recourse to mediums, uh, which you can do to learn the future. I was interested in the Latin here because the word for mediums, for recourse to mediums, is recursus ad pythones. And in Greek mythology, Python was a serpent that was slain by Apollo. And in the 1800s, so that's how recently, in the 1800s, zoologists started applying the word Python to certain tropical snakes, which is what people are think of pythons now as being as these tropical snakes. But that's not what it meant originally. Also, the place where Apollo killed Python was Delphi. and Pythia was the oracle at Delphi. So in both Greek and Latin, Python came to refer to the familiar spirits that mediums consulted and then to the mediums themselves. Uh, Thus, in the Latin Vulgate, Deuteronomy says not to consult with pythons when it says not to consult with mediums. And in the book of Acts, in the Vulgate, Paul exercises a girl who has a spirit of python that she's using to tell the future. 
I was surprised, though, to see in the Latin of the catechism, it puts the French and English word mediums in parentheses after pythones, uh, just to make it clear we're not talking about <laughs> snakes. Although now that I think of it, consulting a snake also really didn't work out too well for the human race. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, especially right at the beginning. So what can we yeah. say about psychic phenomena from the faith perspective? This is a tricky one because there is overlap between reported psychic phenomena and some of the things that the catechism has just discussed, like precognition. However, there are other forms of claimed psychic phenomena that the catechism doesn't mention, like telepathy. As we've seen, the catechism, so the catechism doesn't endorse or condemn telepathy either one. You know, it just doesn't mention it. As we've seen, the catechism is considering things from a supernatural angle. And when it comes to a supernatural perspective, or if we're trying to learn supernaturally about the future, we are only supposed to use divine revelation, nothing else. Similarly, when it comes to supernaturally doing things like healing, we are only supposed to rely on God, not on other supernatural beings. So you can't ask a demon to heal your friend. But the catechism doesn't have a problem with us using the natural means that God has built into human nature or the physical world. We can predict the future using human reason. He's fine with that. And we can accomplish things like healing using properties God built into creation, like you know the properties of drugs and, and plants. One proposal is that psychic phenomena, as we mentioned, are not thought to be supernatural at all, that they involve aspects of the natural world or of human nature that are poorly understood at present. So some psychic researchers say, look, we're not doing anything supernatural. This is just natural, you know, mental radio or whatever. Well, if that turned out to be true, then psychic phenomena would be like electromagnetic phenomena or the functioning of the brain or, you know, other things that were poorly understood before science investigated them. And if, and that's a big if, if it turned out that psychic phenomena are both real and purely natural, then the principles laid out in the catechism wouldn't rule them out. I mean, God did not make any parts of the natural world that are intrinsically evil. He didn't plant abilities in human nature and then make it intrinsically evil for us to use them. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put them in us. And you'll even find uh, Catholic authors discussing this. Uh, for example, we'll have a link in the show notes to an article on telepathy from the 1912 Catholic Encyclopedia that is quite open to the idea that telepathy is just a natural phenomenon. On the other hand, if it turns out that psychic phenomena are real but supernatural, meaning arising from something beyond the natural world and beyond human nature, then we're forbidden to use them. And if it turns out that they're not real at all, then they're also problematic. If they're not real and are understood supernaturally, they're superstition. And if they're not real and are understood naturally, they're pseudoscience. So we'll have to look in the future and see what the evidence points and to what extent we can determine which way the evidence points. But those are those are the options. The situation regarding psychic phenomena is shaky enough that the catechism is really quite wise to give people a, a warning of a general nature in this area, though, you know, it doesn't mean that scientists can't explore the possibility of undiscovered aspects of nature that we have yet to find. 
So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science? All of these areas, all of these different things historically were interrelated, but they've been progressively distinguished from each other as we've learned more in each field. There are things to say about them from both the perspectives of faith and reason, and that's why people are still interested in them. And since each one of them presents us with mysteries, we'll continue to, to discuss them in future episodes. All right. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer folks on these topics? Well, there's tons of books about religion and science, and so we're, I'm not going to have recommendations on those. But I have found some scholarly treatments of magic and psychic phenomena. And that's hard to find because a lot of magic books are just written by some practicing witch somewhere and they're not scholarly at all. Or they're written by some psychic somewhere and they're not scholarly at all. But there actually are scholarly books on these subjects. And so I'm going to recommend a couple of both for people. On magic, there's a book called Magic and Superstition in Europe, A Concise History from Antiquity to the Present. We'll have a link to that. Also, there's a book called Magic in Ancient Greece and Rome, and we'll have a link to that. So there's a couple of scholarly books on magic if you want to dig into that. Then, on magic's history, then a couple on modern parapsychology studies that deal with psychic phenomena. The first one is called Parapsychology, a Handbook for the 21st Century. And the second is An Introduction to Parapsychology, 5th Edition. Both of these are textbooks presenting the findings of various uh, modern studies of these subjects. And then lastly, we'll have a link to the 1912 Catholic Encyclopedia article on telepathy, so you can see what Catholics were thinking about this subject 100 years ago. Excellent. Very good. All right, so let's move on uh, to talk about uh, mysterious feedback from listeners. This feedback all concerns our recent episode on Pope Joan. And our first bit of feedback comes from Michael L. on Facebook, who says, Great episode as usual. You have once again managed to take a topic I never knew I was interested in and keep me engaged from start to finish. Cool. Always glad to be able to do that. And then Brooke Kennel also writes on Facebook, Ah, Pope Joan, one of the many Tempest in a Teacup myths that people hold about the Middle Ages. Luckily, most of my students have never heard the story. Maybe debunking is finally having an effect. Although in fairness, I never imagined she would actually give birth on the horse. I always assumed that the story was saying she went into labor on the horse and presumably dismounted before giving birth. I can imagine the jostling of a horse bringing on labor. What I can't imagine is a woman careful enough to hide her sex while climbing the ecclesiastical ranks, letting herself get pregnant in the first place. Yeah, really implausible. So <laughs> if you're if you're going to hide yourself, your sex for years and years and years, if you're even capable of doing that, you're going to and you're smart enough to become pope. You're also going to be smart enough not to get pregnant. Right. Right. <laughs> so, Jimmy, what uh, we, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? This week, we have a theme on hidden aspects of nature, since that's one of the topics we were discussing. I mentioned earlier that we've discovered a particle that may, we may have discovered a particle that may point to the existence of a fifth force of nature, which science currently doesn't know about. But scientists are interested in whether we found evidence of a fifth force and they're actively debating it. And so we'll have a link to an article on life science about that new particle and then also, you know, there's the field of cryptozoology or hidden animals that are not yet known. And oftentimes, you know, Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster are put in this category. But actually, every year we discover new species that we didn't know about before. 
And so that's an example of real-life cryptozoology, of the discovery of new animals we didn't know about. And so we'll have a link to various new species, and there's a bunch of them, but various new species that were discovered in 2019. So a little applied cryptozoology for you. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? We're going to talk about alien implants, mysterious objects found in people's bodies that are thought to be of extraterrestrial origin. Could they be physical proof of alien contact or even alien control? Hmm, interesting. All right, so that's it from us. So what do you think about the topics of religion and magic and psychic phenomena and science and what Jimmy had to say about them today? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page or sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending us a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Please remember to like this episode when you encounter it on social media, like on the Facebook page or on Twitter, and that helps us to get the show out in front of more folks who might want to see it. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>